Welcome to the Emerging Minds Families Podcast. Hi, I'm Alicia Ranford and you're listening to an Emerging Minds Families Podcast. In today's episode, we will be touching on themes of childhood abuse, neglect and suicidal ideation. So if you feel that this may cause you some distress, perhaps give this episode a miss and join us next fortnight. Or you can find some resources for support in our show notes. There are many and varied reasons why some children are not able to remain living with their birth families and do end up spending time in the care of others. When it's for extended periods, this can include foster and kinship care arrangements or group and residential homes. And here in Australia, this is referred to as out-of-home care. While out-of-home care is intended to provide a really safe and nurturing environment for children, it can also come with its own set of challenges. Children in care may struggle with feelings of loss and abandonment and some identity issues. And they may also face difficulties in forming stable relationships and have to navigate perhaps multiple moves to multiple homes throughout their childhood. Today I'm talking to Meryl Klimczak, who has over 20 years experience as a foster mum and believes that over and above the physical safety being in out-of-home care can offer, it's also the mental health and well-being of the children in her care that provides the support they need to thrive. Welcome Meryl, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks Alicia, really great to be here. Meryl, before we talk about your own experiences, could you explain to those listening today what the difference is between foster and kinship carers? Sure. So the biggest difference is that kinship carers are in some way related to the child who has come into care. So it could be an aunt, it could be a grandmother, it could be a sister, whereas foster carers have no biological or family connection to the children. Okay, so you would generally have not met them before? Generally, yes. And sometimes in kinship carer situations, you haven't met the child either. So you might be a very long distanced relative and you hear of an extended family member who's needed a child to be taken care of. And what is your own experience as a foster mum? So I've been a foster mum for around 20 years and I've had a variety of kids in my care. I've had emergency kids, I've had respite kids, so kids who are placed in care already but need to have an extended relationship, an extended family type connection. So respite kids will come once a month for a weekend. I've had short-term kids, long-term kids, and I have one of my sons who, when he was 15 years of age, I was granted other person guardianship of him. So I was given the guardianship orders to be his legal guardian. So that's kind of the most you can get to as far as permanency with a foster child. So I've done it all. You have. That's an amazing array of experience. And I can imagine that the children who come to you would be often perhaps quite confused or frightened. How do you build trust and really establish a positive relationship with children and perhaps especially those who may have experienced trauma or come from a really exceptionally difficult family situation? I guess it's important to realise that for these children, they come into care not by their own choice and also not often by their own understanding. So in the, oh gosh, I've lost count of how many kids I've I've cared for, let's say somewhere between 15 and 20 kids. Of those, I've not once met a child 
who has rocked up on my doorstep, usually with police escort or with a stranger from a government department, and who has felt like they are deserving of being removed from their family. So these children, regardless of the chaos and the unsafety of their family life, these children believe that that's actually what a family looks like and that that's actually what normal is. So when they arrive on my doorstep and I've got a clean house and I don't yell and I don't scream and I don't hit them and I don't kick them out, that's actually an incredibly unfamiliar and therefore unsafe sensation for these kids. And I think that that's an element that is sometimes misunderstood with children. So these kids will arrive on my doorstep, usually with a little box or a little bag, sometimes a rubbish bag, usually filled with junk, what I would consider junk, but what they consider to be their most precious, valuable belongings. And that's it. I know nothing about them. I know nothing often of their history, of the experiences of abuse in their their family dynamic, how long they've been in care. Some kids go from placement to placement. Others are coming from biological families. So over time and lots of investigating, I feel like a bit of a special detective sometimes. You'll try something and then you get some sort of escalated, elevated reaction from a child. So that will then be an indicator. Oh, that's actually maybe potentially an area of abuse and neglect in their life. As an example, one of the young lads that moved in with me was incredibly resistant to having a shower, not even once a week, couldn't do it, just could not bear. And it became quite a stressful event in our home because he needed, obviously, good personal hygiene. But it turned out over time and listening and being patient with him and inquiring and always being present for him. It turned out that a majority of the abuse that he had experienced had connections to a bathroom. So that then creates a whole nother layer of trauma when I'm someone new who doesn't know him and I'm saying, get in the shower, you need to have a shower, it's time to have a shower, you haven't had a shower. So we then had to make adjustments. So how about a face washer in your bedroom? Or how about we just don't shower for a couple of days or how about trying a bath? So lots and lots of investigating and trying to figure it out. I like your analogy there that you're a you're a bit of a detective, you know, you've got to investigate and, and find that middle ground that works for them and you yeah. um, and helps them to move forward. Absolutely. My standards are not their standards. My benchmarks are not their benchmarks. And what, what's actually really important for this child at this moment? So it can be the, the smallest of things, finding the smallest of familiar experiences for them and connecting in with those. Another example is a young person I had who had come to my place with a little bit of a booklet around what they liked and what they disliked and what frightened them and what made them happy. And that's not always the case. But in this situation, I knew that this young person loved baked beans. I hate baked beans. (laughs) I really do. I'm imagining you ate a lot of baked beans. (laughs) However, we ate a lot of baked beans because that was something that was familiar, that was comforting for him and that gave him a sense of safety and security when everything else was dishevelled in his life. Mm, And that that leads me into thinking about how you really build a supportive and nurturing environment for children in out-of-home care when your home environment is so different from the one that they've come from. 
Yeah, it is. So even things like walking into a home, like I said previously, that's clean and tidy and that uh, doesn't have, you know, days of food laying around. And when I have a child who was coming into my care, I would always make sure that there were clean sheets and there was a clean bed and that the bed was made nicely and that the books were placed orderly on the bookcase. But those are things that are actually really unfamiliar again and really feel unsafe for children. So I realised that maybe I needed to just not have the bed quite as well made and just have the books a little bit dishevelled. And it's okay to have Lego all over the floor. That's fine. Whatever works for the kids. And it's about spending lots of time, time which often you don't have. It's time sitting. It's time playing, showing children how to play. It's time inquiring without re-traumatising and re-triggering them. It's time and patience. And you've talked about how each child comes with their own story. How do you work with these kids in your care to identify their unique needs and challenges? I can imagine that must be quite tricky. It is really tricky. And again, it comes back to time and the not just time in a quantity of time, but a time in a quality of time. So... Often children will create a story and a picture about their life through a play experience. They might have some Lego out or they might have some Play-Doh or they might be throwing a hissy fit because something has not gone quite to plan. So it's about looking beyond what it is that you can see in their behaviour and figuring out the pieces of the puzzle that will work for them and that make up their, their experience. And part of it as well is acknowledging with them that it's really tough and being honest. Some of these kids will never go home and I might know that in my gut. Can I say that to children? Not always. But sometimes it is better to let them know that that's actually not going to be possible for them to go home, but also that it's nothing that they've done that's stopping that. And Meryl, the children that arrive on your doorstep, they must come with such a wide range of emotions that they are trying to manage What strategies have you found that are most effective in helping children in your care manage these big emotions and cope with the difficulties that they're experiencing? I think when they first come into care, I would say 99% of the kids have come in in a really angry, confused, aggressive, sometimes violent, emotional state. And that often sits like that for, oh gosh, it can be anywhere from days to weeks because they are feeling unsafe. And they're wondering if they behave badly enough, will they be allowed to go back to mum and dad or who they identify as their mum and dad in their life. And it's about figuring out where they are in the cycle. So we go from anger and aggressive and violent and then we might move to placating and overcompensating and trying to be the good child because being angry and aggressive didn't work so maybe I'll try this tactic of being over compliant and then when that doesn't work and they realize actually we might be here for a little while we've got to get stuck into the mud together that's when the real work of connection and support can actually begin with them where you've formed a relationship and a trust that you're not going to let them down you're not going to hurt them You haven't overreacted when they've behaved poorly. 
you've recognised and communicated with them about their sense of uncertainty and unsafety in your home, but that you're willing to actually just stick by them. And I imagine that that, like you said, that must go on for months and months as they learn that you are someone and your home is somewhere safe and that they can trust to be themselves. absolutely. And you know, there was one occasion where I sat in the bottom of a cupboard, oh gosh, with a young person, probably about 10 years of age. And they felt really safe in the bottom of the cupboard amongst their smelly shoes. And I got in the cupboard with them. And I was there for, oh gosh, several hours, no words being spoken. But I knew that they just needed to know that there was, they weren't alone, and that there was someone safe next to them and by that point we'd established that I was a relatively safe person so it wasn't on their first night but this was after maybe a couple of months and they were really struggling and I can't fix it I can't fix this situation but I can be there showing them a seed showing them an alternative way to be able to work through our emotions and feel through the difficult feelings that we might have. Meryl, in talking to you before we started recording, you spoke to me about how the majority of the kids that have come into your care actually don't like being referred to as foster kids. Can you talk to me a little bit about how you describe them and your own children in your in your family life? Sure. So the formal term for what it is that I have done is foster caring. I understand that I'm not mum to these children, but I also understand that 95% of what I do is actually mumming with them. So in my family, we have a combination of what I call heart babies and belly babies, but they're all my babies. One of them is now 24. He's taller than me. He is one of my heart babies And heart baby refers to the fact that he came into my life through foster care and then through the other person guardianship care. So I have two heart babies and I have three belly babies, my belly babies being my biological kids. And for me, that was a really important connector between all of the children that I have who've walked through my door. They all have a place. They all came in because I chose to have them because I got a phone call saying, are you available? Are you able? And I said, yes. So I chose to take on mumming of those children. Now, many of them have left and moved on. Some have come back full circle and found me again and reconnected. But for a time, for each of those kids that I've had in my care, they've been a part of my heart and I've been a part of mumming them through their life. And it's a real privilege. And I can imagine that being a parent or caregiver of this type requires a lot of support for you. And because I know as a mum of two kids myself, raising a child does take a village. What does your village look like? Lots of friends, lots of meaningful, valuable, supportive friends. Connecting in with other foster mums, foster parents, foster families, connecting in with peak bodies that support foster and kinship carers. So here in South Australia, we have a particular organisation called Foster and Kinship Carers SA. And they are a wealth of resource, support, advocacy, et cetera, et cetera, connecting in with mental health services, resourcing yourself with books and more books and more books about trauma and families and how to bring kids who have been traumatised into your family, et cetera, et cetera. And then the final part of my village 
is really my children, my belly baby children. And it is so critical that they see themselves as a valuable part of the family dynamic and the experience of fostering children because equally as importantly as I demonstrate to children through mumming what it is that a safe family can look like with parents, my biological children are able to show foster children who come through my home what it looks like to have healthy sibling relationships. Now, that doesn't mean to have perfect sibling relationships. (laughs) I was going to say, I imagine that that comes full cycle around as well. (laughs) But what does it mean to fight well? What does it mean to have a disagreement with your siblings? What does it mean to play together? What does it mean to role play? What are hierarchies in families? What does it mean to be a child in a family, not to be a quasi-adult or to be placed into adult responsibilities. And my biological children to this day have always said that it has been one of the greatest experiences for our family, that they understand that family is not connected by blood, but family is connected by love and connected by care. As a mum, self-care is important for all parents and caregivers What do you do to prioritise your own well-being whilst also caring for your heart and belly babies? Oh, look, I'd like to say I've got it nailed, (laughs) but I don't. (laughs) Although edging on 50, I think that uh, time and experience and a number of burnouts has helped me to recognise when I'm about to come to the end of my tether. The biggest thing is in in self-care is learning to say no. And recognising that I can't actually save 3,000 odd children in care in South Australia and 46 odd thousand children in care across Australia. That's not my job. I can't do that. But what I can do is make sure that I am trying to eat well, that I'm trying to exercise and nurture whatever that looks like, that I am attentive to my own mental health and well-being. Because if I have an empty bucket, I can't be the very best for anybody else. I love to get out in my garden. I'm not very good at it, but I love to do it. I love to bake. I love to listen to music. I love to listen to podcasts. And I notice when I'm starting to deplete in my wellness that those things that I love start to drop off. So it's about always being attentive, finding time, even if it's just five minutes. One of the little rules I have in my home is that when mum has her first morning cup of coffee, you are not to speak to her. (laughs) That is ultimate self-care. And (laughs) I imagine there's a lot of parents listening that can relate to that rule. Yes, (laughs) correct. If the house is on fire and your life is in danger, please make sure that you assess how severe it is before asking for my help. (laughs) I love that. But it's about also helping our children to realise that, you know, mum, mum also needs her own time and that it's okay. I'll let my kids know, you know what, I'm actually just needing some quiet. I'm needing some solace. I'll be in my room. I shut my door. I'll be there for 15 minutes, 30 minutes. If the house is on fire or there is, your life <laughs> is in danger. Refer to rule one. <laughs> but that's really important that they also understand because that's modelling for them, that it's not about being stoic and it's not about pushing through and it's not about saving the world, but it's actually about really reflecting and being insightful and responsive to my own wellness and my own mental health 
and being okay with the waves that happen and doing what I need to do, whatever that might be. Meryl, during our conversations today, you have shared some of the challenges the young people in your care face. And I'm wondering, what are the main parenting skills you find yourself drawing on in these situations? Well, fostering children is not a unique set of skills, but it creates a unique dynamic in the way that you parent and in the way that you care for children. Parenting is parenting. Children are children. There are some fundamentals that just don't change regardless of your experience. But it's within the context of the experience of a foster child that those nuances and those unique presentations and those unique skills to really weave and do that super investigative detective work happens. So regardless of if I'm a mum of a, my belly babies and I'm supporting them through doing their homework or if it's a foster child and I'm supporting them through doing their homework, the principles are the same. You need to get your homework done. You need to sit at the dining room table to do it. You need to have it presented in a manner that's appropriate. But for a foster child, maybe they're actually not terribly interested in their homework because they've spent six years of their life trying to keep themselves alive. So maybe we modify the way that we do it. Maybe we become creative. Maybe doing their homework at the dining room table is really stressful. Maybe they want to sit on the lounge to do it or sit in bed because that's where they feel safe. So the principles are the same, but the actual outworkings of it need to be a bit more nuanced for kids who are in care. Meryl, we've talked about some of the things that keep the children in your care safe. What are some of the things that you really feel are important when looking after the mental health and well-being of kids that come into your care? I think the most critical thing is to recognise that children who come into care come loaded with complex trauma, loaded. And as a foster mum, if I'm ever to think that I have all the bells and whistles and skills and professional and academic knowledge to be able to support them and nurture them on my own, I'm foolish. I really am. We have to understand that children in care need particularly extensive, immediate and meaningful therapeutic supports, whether that's through public health, whether that's through private psychology, whether that's through psychiatry, whether that's through social and emotional well-being programs at your children's school, however it might look, we have to pay attention to the mental wellness of children in care. And we need to do that deliberately. And as an example, I had a young person in my care who at nine years of age experienced extreme mental crises, mental health crises, and year three and highly suicidal. And I really struggled to try and keep them safe. And I reached out for support and I was told, well, you might just need to wait because the public system, as we know, is backlogged and it's probably going to be about a four-month wait before they can have mental health intervention. I'm not waiting four months. I've got a nine-year-old. I need to keep them safe. I really, And that's my primary responsibility. So step it up. Advocate. Ring psychologists. Don't react, but act and respond promptly to their mental health because it is incredibly complex. And I'm not, I'm not a psychologist, but I'm a really good mum and I have spent time tuning in, being patient, caring, building trust, building relationship 
And I have to utilise that in a positive way by drawing on professional resources and then making sure that they're meaningful. If we don't address the mental health of young people in care, we end up with older people, adults, out of care, struggling, continually struggling, justice system, mental health services, drug and alcohol abuse, homelessness. That's where they're going to end up if we don't actually pay attention to their mental health and wellness in all of the ways that matter. Meryl, it's been absolutely a privilege to hear you talk about your heart and belly babies today. Thank you for spending time with us. And I wonder, is there one thing you'd want people to think about who are listening today who perhaps don't know much about foster children and their experiences? I think that the one takeaway is to remember that Every child who comes into the world has the potential to be a magnificent stained glass window picture. And if you go to the cathedrals and you look up and there is colour and there is beauty and there is magic, that's what every child from the moment they're born has the potential to be. Some children end up in family situations where it's then my responsibility for a period of time to scoop them up and scoop the shattered glass window bits and pieces up and create, help them to create their own stained glass window picture. With my, my belly babies, it's a little bit easier because I'm not trying to manage fragments. But if we remember at the end of the day that all children are deserving of the opportunity for love and the opportunity to be shown a better way and the opportunity to feel safe and the opportunity to be heard. That's the most critical and I always come back to that. Oh, what a wonderful note to finish on. Thank, Thank you, you, Meryl. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. It's been lovely to be here and I didn't cry, <laughs> which is... <laughs> the, the passion and commitment that you talk about, all of your children, is a really beautiful thing to hear. Thank so you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Alicia. Visit our website at www.emergingminds.com.au forward slash families for a wide range of free information and resources to help support child and family mental health. Emerging Minds leads the National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health. The centre is funded by the Australian Government Department of Health under the National Support for Child and Youth Mental Health Programme.